Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. Finishing chapter 1 today in verse 27. James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us once again to open up your word together. We ask that you would Help us. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. Help us to understand our our duties. Help us to understand all that you've done for us. Help me to preach and teach your word accurately. Help us to understand it, to apply it, to be changed by it, to be doers of the word and not forgetful hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is very common for Christians to go to extremes. The extreme of neglecting one truth for the sake of another. I think there's something in our, our human nature that causes us to do this because we, we, we see something and we want to go in into that wholeheartedly and, and we have this tunnel vision where we begin to neglect all of our other duties, and so we are constantly on a pendulum swing, going from one side to another. So there are some who believe that Christianity is about nothing more than service. Nothing more than, than, than outward works. It's very relevant that James is writing this to Jewish Christians who, who lived in a pharisaical culture where Outward works was emphasized by people who inwardly were hypocrites. And so there are many who focus on outward works, but who care nothing about personal holiness and righteousness. And you will often find that sometimes the people who do the most charity will oftentimes be the worldliest professing Christians you can meet. And, and oftentimes, some of the, the churches that seem to be most active in a community are churches that are devoid of sound doctrine and filled with worldliness. But there are also those who go to the opposite extreme. Those who, d- who do nothing more than study theology. They have great theology, but never put it to practice by going out and serving others. And these people spend much time in Scripture and in prayer, but, but never in charitable deeds. And they believe that the entirety of the Christian life is about just individual, private holiness. 
being separate from the world as, as much as possible to the point of not even engaging with the world. But both of these views are imbalanced and do not accurately portray true Christianity. And in our text today, James will properly depict Christianity for us, both this internal and external element of Christianity. James says, pure and undefiled religion. This word pure means guiltless, in a state of cleanliness or free from guilt and sin. And undefiled carries the idea of being free from stain or blemish. There's really synonyms. Gill points out that James is speaking of that which is sincere and genuine and free from adulteration and hypocrisy. So James is talking about a religion that is pure. Notice that he also uses the word religion. There is a great attack on the word religion, and there has been for some time. Uh, Daniel Doriani notes that for many evangelical Christians, religion is a pejorative. It suggests rituals of worship, human ceremonies, void of meaning and lacking biblical basis. Religion signifies spiritual exercises that supplant biblical Christianity, the smell of incense, the the chiming of bells, the, the habits and rituals of vain spirituality. Religion, we feel, is what is left when the Spirit leaves the building. So we hear things like, I hate religion, but love Jesus. There was a man who, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, came up with a poem about that, and everybody was saying, this is just so profound. Religion is so bad, but Jesus is, is great. But James actually uses the word religion. A word that signifies practices, organization, customs, if you were. And this is the word that James uses. But, but who gets to define what, what this true religion looks like? Notice James says, before God the Father. True religion is that which is done before the eyes of God. Once again, no hypocrisy, no doing things for the attention or praise of man. James is speaking of a non-hypocritical religion. Matthew Henry notes that religion is pure and undefiled, which is so before God the Father. That is right, which is so in God's eye, and which chiefly aims at his approbation. True religion teaches us to do everything as in the presence of God and to seek his favor and study to please him in all our actions. So there is a pure religion, a non-hypocritical religion. Religion is not a bad thing, but, but true religion is done before the eyes of God. What did the Jews, the, specifically the, the, the Pharisees, do? They did all of their works before men. Wanting to please men. Wanting to show others how, how righteous and, and holy they were outwardly. But this is not true religion. 
So what is true religion before the eyes of God? James says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So true religion has two elements, an internal element and an external element. And he deals with the internal element first, or sorry, the external element first. So the first part of pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, does this mean that you go to a widow and have a cup of tea and you fulfilled your duty? That's not what James is saying. To visit means to visit someone in order to determine his condition. It means to look upon in order to help or to benefit. We just read in Exodus that Moses visited his people. And what did he do? He saw one of them being abused, so he struck the Egyptian. God put it in his heart to go to visit his people, to look upon their situation. And he saw an injustice, and he acted upon it. He visited This word is used in Matthew chapter 25, verse 36. I was sick and you visited me. John Gill said, it not only intends visits paid to sick persons in a Christian manner, relieving them with their substance, giving good advice or speaking comfortable words to them, but attending them and waiting on them and doing such things for them, which in their weak state they are not capable of doing for themselves. This is one of those words, when we translate it from the Greek to English, there's really not a good word that depicts what is happening here. In Luke chapter 7, after Christ had raised the widow of Nain's son, we read that there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, there is a great prophet among us, and that God has visited his people. They knew that that, that something great had happened. This had to be a great prophet of God, so they felt as though God was visiting them. Again, Gil says, they concluded that God had looked upon them with a look of love and had a gracious regard to them and had sent them the Messiah. This was their definition of visit. God had looked graciously on them. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen said of Moses that that when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, as was just mentioned. MacArthur notes that to visit means much more than to drop by for a chat. It carries the ideas of caring for others, exercising oversight on their behalf, and of helping them in whatever way is needed. The word is used frequently in the New Testament of God's visiting his people in order to help strengthen and encourage them. So who are we to visit in this way? He says orphans and widows. Now an orphan, as we know, is a, is a parentless child, but, but this could also refer to a child who, whose father was absent. So he could still be considered an, an orphan, but, but his mom is still around. This word is translated comfortless in John chapter 14, 
When he says, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. That's the same word, orphan. I will not leave you orphans, comfortless. And a widow is the same as we would define today, a woman whose husband is dead. And now orphans and widows were typically the most desolate people in society, the most needy people in society. They were usually poor and oftentimes unprotected. And it would be very easy to take advantage of them and very difficult for them to defend themselves and to make a living. And so we are told that pure religion visits the orphan and the widow in their affliction. So pure religion looks at the neediest people in society and helps them in their distress. It looks upon their situation and says, how can I be of help? And then it moves to action. Not like the person in James who says, be warmed and filled. Have a good day. I hope you get everything you need. Takes action. In other words, biblical Christianity is a Christianity that that loves others in a way that cares for them and provides for their needs. And let's just expand a bit on on orphans and widows here. Who all should be covered under this category? Well, first, I think he's talking about actual orphans and widows. But But I don't think that this text is limited to orphans and widows. Again, I think he uses this because these are ones who, who are typically most desolate, most poor in society. So the second group of people who he is talking about here are the poor and needy in general. So, so specifically here, those who are the neediest. James says we should visit them. Pure religion goes to those who have the greatest needs in society and relieves them, helps them, provides for them, cares for them. And again, we could, we could say, well, what exactly does this mean? Because it doesn't mean that we allow a person to never care for themselves, but, but if we know that there's a problem there, they have an actual need, we, we, we help with that need and we, we help them to, to grow and to learn how to provide for themselves. We, we assist them. We love them. We care for them. But what about a third group today? What, what about those little babies who have been sentenced to death by their parents? Those little babies in the womb whose parents are going to murder them. Is this not an orphan? A little child, vulnerable, in the womb, abandoned by father and mother. Dear friend, I think that's the definition of an orphan. This person is comfortless. This little baby is desolate. This little baby has no provider and no 
protector. So now how do we visit these orphans and widows? Well, we already talked about this word, visit. To, to go to them and look upon their situation in order to help. But I think that each one of us here will visit orphans and widows in a different way. I think we each have to examine our lives and examine their situations and say, how can we be of help? Maybe you know how to fix things. Maybe you have extra finances to spare. Maybe you can teach people how to find jobs. Maybe you have extra space in your home. Maybe you can adopt an actual orphan. Maybe you can make it your your job to look after a widow. There are so many different things that, that we can do to visit those in society who are the neediest. And I want you to note here that, that even though we, we, in a manner of speaking, will visit in a different way, I think this, this word here indicates that we have to be active rather than passive in this. In order to visit, we must go to those in need. We have to be careful that we are not sitting around idly hoping that no one approaches us. But this word here indicates a going to look upon a person's situation. This means actively looking upon the situation of an orphan or a widow and saying, how can I be of help here? Going and doing this. Looking for ways to do this. So we know who we are to visit and we know how we are to visit, but why do we visit orphans and widows? Why do we care for those who are needy in our society? I'll give you two reasons. Number one, to care for orphans and widows is to show genuine compassion. Remember that we are talking about the neediest people in society, which means they usually can't repay us. This means that it's not done with an expectation of something in return, but is done because of true, genuine, sincere compassion. Thomas Manton said, We make our giving many times to be a kind of selling, and mind our advantage in our charity. Oh, consider our our sweetest influence should, should fall on the lower grounds to visit the rich widow is but courtesy, to visit the poor and that in their affliction, that is charity. So we are not helping people because we can be repaid. True compassion says there is nothing you can do to repay me, but I'm going to help you anyways. I want nothing in return. I don't want to take a video and put it on TikTok of me handing you food so that everybody would praise me and love me. I don't need to do that. True compassion. So what then is our motivation? Why 
Should we do this? Where should this genuine compassion come from? Well, two sources. The, the first source of this compassion is the compassion that we have been shown by God. Dear friends, when we can relate to someone's situation, it is easier to show compassion because you know firsthand what it's like to be in their situation. And now perhaps you say, I don't know what it's like to be desolate. I, I don't know what it's like to be a widow. I don't know what it's like to be an orphan. Dear friends, if you are a Christian, you do. What, what did we just talk about earlier? We were enemies of God. And he adopted us into his family. Dear friends, we were orphans. We had no heavenly father. All we had was a, a God whose, whose vengeance was going to come upon us, but we were brought into his family. And not only that, but became a part of the bride of Christ. No longer desolate. So because we know what it feels like to be orphans and outside of the bride of Christ and what it feels like to have that, that great compassion shown to us during our time of need, we can look upon actual orphans and widows and say that I was once spiritually desolate, spiritually fatherless outside the bride of Christ, but, but I was brought in. I didn't deserve it. Again, mercy, we talked about earlier. I did not deserve to be adopted, to become a son of God. That, that's not what I deserved. And, 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 and there was nothing I can do to repay what has been given to me. In light of this, we should have compassion on others and say, there's nothing you can do to repay me. You don't even deserve for me to help you. But I do it because God has shown compassion to me. He has given me, given me unmerited favor. And dear friends, one of the evidences that we have been shown compassion by God is that we show compassion to others. And the second source of this genuine compassion is the knowledge that we serve others by, by serving, that we serve Christ rather by serving others, especially our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. especially when we are caring for one another in the body of Christ. We're we're serving Christ. Our desire should be to serve Christ, and we we do this by, by serving others who are in need. Dear friends, this means that that if we have a sincere desire to serve Christ, we will look upon the situation of those in need and have a sincere desire to serve them. So that's the first reason why pure religion cares for orphans and widows. Because to care for them is to show genuine compassion. But the second reason... Why, why pure religion cares for orphans and widows is because to care for orphans and widows is to be like God. Do a study one day on all that God says about orphans and widows throughout the Bible, and it is amazing. I mean, He has just absolutely great care and concern for orphans and widows. I believe it's in Leviticus, maybe he says. If you afflict orphans and widows in any way, and they cry out to me at all, I will kill you with the sword and make your children fatherless and your women widows. That's a serious threat. Why? Because he cared that much. You do not afflict these people. You care for them. Deuteronomy 10.18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68.5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. What a statement. If you want to know what God is in his holy habitation, he is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. The Lord watches over the strangers. He, he relieves the fatherless and widow. Psalm 146. Jeremiah 49. Leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. There's really no other group of people who, who, who God takes such good care of throughout all of Scripture. Who he's constantly telling people, I will protect them. I will keep them. And what about the New Testament? Hellenist widows. Not receiving rations of food. So the diaconate there established. We we can't do this. We we can't neglect them. We we need to to make this work. It, It was such a serious thing. 
And then we can look at 1 Timothy 5 and, and, and we have something, we don't know exactly what, but we have something going on there in the church where, where, where the church actually has, has widows who are in a sense employed by the church and taken care of by the church. What about Jesus on the cross? He didn't say very many words on the cross. But what is one of the things he did? He looked at the disciple whom he loved and said, Behold, your mom. He looked at his mom and said, Behold, your son. Why did he do this? The last thing I'm going to do on the cross is to make sure that my widowed mother is cared for. But, but Jesus had other brothers and sisters. But they were not yet believers. So not only am I going to provide for my widowed mother physically, but spiritually. Th think of that oversight. When Jesus is on the cross, everything is being displayed. Oftentimes when you said something while being crucified, it would be almost like a legal statement. He had everyone's attention. Everyone's. And he said, I'm going to take care of my widowed mom. It was that important. I mean, come on, Jesus. He could, he could have said something more spiritual than that. That's pure religion. Caring for those in need. Taking care of of the least helped in society. Those who are most desolate. Those who are most vulnerable. Jesus showed compassion for, for the widow of Nain by raising her only son from the dead. Here is a widow with one son. She was now not only a widow but without a man there to protect her and watch over her. So what did Jesus do? He raised him from the dead. And all throughout Scripture, we, we see that orphans and widows are special objects of God's care and compassion. Therefore, when we make orphans and widows special objects of our care and compassion, we imitate God in doing this. And what does... Ephesians 5, 1 say, Be imitators of God as dear children. Something is seriously wrong with a society that looks at orphans and widows and says, How can I exploit them? Dear friends, I have been in countless nursing homes in my days working EMS. More nursing homes than I can count. And I will tell you, as a nation, we do not take care of widows. And if you know anything about the foster system, you know we do not take care of orphans. These people are often abused, neglected. And yet God says these people are special objects of my care and compassion. And dear friends, we must reflect God in this. We must imitate God in this. 
going out, finding those in need and saying, how can we help you? You know, helping those who are most desolate in society can oftentimes be a a dirty task, a difficult task, something we want to avoid. And I think this is why James is going to get into partiality in chapter 2, because it's often difficult to help those in need. It's much easier to say, you know, there's an institution out there to help you somewhere. Let me just find a phone number for you. Difference, this is not caring for widows and orphans. To tell them maybe they should find a government institution that can help them with what they need. I once read in a commentary on 1 Timothy 5 that, that, that the early church had to take care of widows because there, was, there wasn't any government funding to do that yet. What ignorance. As, as though God was telling the church to do that only until somebody else would do it. No, God said that and that's the way the church did it. Because that's the way God designed it. We live in a culture where we think that that our tax money going to welfare is charity. Difference, that is not charity. That is not love. That is not pure and undefiled religion. That is not compassion. Helping others often hurts. You notice the the parable of the Good Samaritan? What did he do? He took this injured man to an end, gave his own money, said, take care of this person. I will come back, and and if he has more needs, I'll give you more. How many people would do that today? No one. We would say, I hope he has insurance or something. If he doesn't, I don't know what to tell you. We don't think that way today. We have literally been taught to to believe that, that, that we don't have to do things personally. That there's an institution, some organization out there to do this for us. But this is not the case. One of, the, one of the reasons why, for example, that the government is so much more involved in, in charity or, or welfare than we are is because the church has stopped doing its duty. The, the church left a gap. And people often say today, well, there's not much we can do because the government does it. But dear friends, the opposite is true. The government started doing it because Christians stopped And we cannot be content to just say, well, somebody else will take care of them. This needs to be personal to us. This should be a part of our religion. This is a part of pure religion before the eyes of God. And so what about this internal element? James says the second part of pure religion before the eyes of God is to keep oneself unstained 
or unspotted from the world. This means that we are to be free from, moral, from the moral filth of the world. It's not only about good works. We can't say, God, I know I'm not growing spiritually because I'm helping other people. I know that I'm living in sin, but I don't have time to work on sanctification. I don't have time to read this Bible because I'm not going to sit there reading my Bible when I can be helping others. No. There's an internal element to this. MacArthur said those who belong to God are to be characterized by moral and spiritual purity. By unstained and unblemished holiness. And this is not to say that that we will be morally perfect. But, But moral perfection should actually be our goal. This is what we are striving for through God's grace and his help. Thomas Manton said to keep ourselves unspotted from the world is to keep ourselves from the taint and infection of an evil example and the prevalence and sovereignty of worldly lust. This is something that we today have to be very concerned with. Because worldliness is so prevalent. Oftentimes you can't tell the difference between a person who professes faith in Christ and a person who does, who doesn't, rather. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, how impossible is it to be saved by works when we consider this? Why do I say this? Well, what book of the Bible Do people like Roman Catholics go to to try to say that we are justified by works? They go to the book of James. But James says, pure religion is not just good works, but being morally pure. Now, which one of you can, which one of you have that down? Which one of you can be so unstained from the world that you could earn your own salvation? I mean, maybe you do good works and, and, and we can debate, oh, is this enough? Or maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe I can do a little bit more. I could spend the rest of my life doing good works. But guess what? I have to deal with this internal element. This keeping myself unspotted from the world. And if we are honest with ourselves, we probably don't keep ourselves unspotted from the the world for more than a few hours at a time. We are so influenced by the world. Oftentimes, like fish who who don't even realize they are wet. How often is God showing you something else where you were living in sin and had no idea, and God reveals it to you, and you say, really, really? We're going to go through this again. I mean, I just confessed this last sin. But time and time again, the Lord reveals to us our moral imperfection so that we can repent and turn from it. 
But when we realize our, our, our spiritual state, we know there's no possible way to, to work ourselves to salvation. Because even if we could do good works, we have to remain unspotted from the world. This, this standard is impossible. And this, dear friends, is why Jesus came and not only died for us, but lived a perfect life for us. Can, can you imagine... I mean, just think about how how glorious of a Savior Christ is. That He lived over 30 years on earth being unstained from the world. Not just doing all of the right things, but being unstained from all of the influences around Him. We, We can't even fathom this. But Jesus did it. For us. But notice also here that the sinfulness of being like the world. And many modern churches and, and, and Christians today, this is actually considered a virtue. How much of the world can we take on? The more we are like the world, the more we attract it. The more people will come and join our social club. Churches are purposefully inviting the filth of our culture into the church and the lines of its members. I mean, the, the big thing right now, homosexuality. So-called reformed churches bringing this into their midst thinking that it will make them relevant, that it will somehow help their ministry. Dear friends, this is taking on the moral filth of our culture. But James says that pure religion keeps itself unspotted from the world. But we say relevant religion brings in some of that. Let's just mix it in a little bit. Not too much, but but let's accept enough to make people comfortable with us. And how do we conclude this matter? The conclusion of all of this is that true religion, religion that is pure before the eyes of God, religion that comes from being a doer of the word and not a hearer only, This religion includes both charity and holiness. In biblical Christianity, the two cannot be separated. Matthew Henry put it this way, false religious may be known by their impurity and uncharitableness. True religion teaches us to do everything as in the presence of God. An unspotted life must go with the unfeigned love and charity. Our true religion is equal to the measure in which these things have place in our hearts and conduct. Consider that. If you want to measure our religion, what place does holiness and charity have in them, in our hearts, in our conduct? And I close with these words, 
by Thomas Manton, who says, Well then, let the hand be open and the heart pure. You must visit the fatherless and the widow and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Dear friends, can we ever do this perfectly? If we could, we would not need Christ. This is something that that I personally have to repent of. Lord, I'm not charitable enough. I don't care enough about the orphan and the widow. I I don't care enough about holiness. May we all be repentant of this. But, but not doing this for good works. Listen to me. When, 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 we, when, we, when we look at a text like this, don't say to yourself, I'm going to go out there now and I'm going to get myself in good favor with God by, by practicing holiness and by being charitable and then I will be right with God. Dear friends, being right with God through Christ leads to this. Not the other way around. When we are right with God, when we are growing in our knowledge of Christ, and we, when we see His, His beauty and His glory, and we, and we meditate upon His mercy and His grace towards us like we did this morning, then it causes us to want to open our hands to those in need. And it causes us to want to be unspotted from the world. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you once again for your word. And Father, we ask that those who don't know you would, would, would truly come to know you this very day. Father, help us to be overwhelmed with the compassion that you have shown towards us by reconciling us to you while we were enemies and making us your sons and daughters. Father, help us to to have compassion on those in need because of the compassion that you have shown us. We have a tendency to look at others and to say, I'm not going to help you because you're getting what you deserve. But Father, if you gave us what we deserve, we would all be in hell right now. Help us to love others. To be filled with biblical compassion that our hearts would be exploding with compassion wanting to to serve others in need and not just to be noticed not to be praised by men but but out of a genuine love for others and lord help us to be unspotted from the world help us to recognize the world Christianity and and worldliness have been so intermingled in our culture that we we sometimes don't even spot it. Give us wisdom 
And Father, help us not to be trying to earn salvation or earn favor with you by by doing good deeds, but help us to be trusting in Jesus for salvation alone. And at the source of our desire to be holy and to serve others would be because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.